Hi, everyone. This is trumpeter Chris Bode, and you're listening to the Behind the Note podcast with your great host, Chris Davis. You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hello, it's a new day. Thanks for pressing play on this new episode, number 48 of Behind the Note Podcast. We have some great topics that we're going to talk about, including how to build a team that has your best interest in mind. You want to make sure you surround yourself with the best people possible. We're going to talk about how to do that. We're also going to talk about how to set goals so that you can accomplish them and move on to the next goal. And we're also going to talk about success. In a past episode, Milton Suggs told us to define success for ourselves, and that was great advice. Today's guest has a different perspective on that word in general, and he's going to tell you why through a story. Something happened that changed his mind about success. It's a great story. You're going to want to hear it. And so I'm happy to bring to you uh, a great person. Let me tell you this. Over a year ago, I met this person at a conference, and I said, will you be a guest on my podcast? Before I can get the question out, he said, of course, I would love to. Let me know when. We, we worked it out. He's here today, and I'm thankful because back then it was only an idea. The podcast did not even exist So today we have a great composer, a Grammy Award winning artist, a great teacher, a great musician all around, has performed in countless places, too many to name here, and uh, works with the Clayton Brothers, hint, hint. I'm happy to present to you right now, bassist John Clayton. John, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We're so glad to have you today. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here, Chris. Now, I just introduced you to the audience, but we would like to get to know you a little bit better. And so I'd like to start by asking you, what do you like to do when you're not performing music? <laughs> like, what what is that like? I don't know what that's like. Yeah, uh, that, that does not take up a lot of my time, whatever that is. No, I, I, love, I love cooking and I do that. When I'm home, I cook all the time. And if I could cook on my tours, I would cook all because I was going to be actually I was planning on being a chef before I was a bass player, um, and so now I do both. And also, I love fishing. I kind of grew up fishing. I grew up in LA on the coast in, in Venice, California, Southern California, in Venice, and that's right on a beach. So my brother and I, especially in the summertime, uh, when we were kids, we would walk to the beach almost every day and fish. So I, I still love doing those things. Nice. Real exciting. I, I love the look on your face. We can't see this. This is an audio podcast. But when I asked that question, he looked off like, I don't know what that's like not to play music. <laughs> that was funny. That was great. So, okay, I'm going to begin uh, by starting. I'm going to start by talking about habits. And normally I save this for last, but I want to get right into it. So what are some of your personal habits that you feel are responsible for your success today? Your question uh, really touches on a few things that I uh, have strong feelings about. Number one, I feel like like you don't really acknowledge, in most cases, you don't really acknowledge success. 
the, the person doesn't like you know the things that that i recently the last october i broke my leg had a little accident broke my leg uh, it's successful for, for me i'm at i'm recognizing success success now about the fact that i can walk without crutches and other people don't have that privilege uh, i wake up in the morning and i can i can urinate <laughs> yeah. you know as as small as that seems as normal as that seems that's a struggle for some people and so there are a lot of successes that we experience throughout the day on a daily basis that we don't acknowledge. The things that I look at that I'm very happy about, that I'm involved in, I look at as, as more blessings than successes. You know, wow, I'm able to actually play with this person? Wow, I, that blows my mind. I don't kind of think to myself, you know what? I'm finally there. I'm finally like, this is one of those successful monikers moments in my life. So I really don't, I don't think of success that way. And, and then the things that I do, I don't know if there is, there must be. Now I'm thinking your, your question through as, as I talk here. Oh, this is great. This is perfect. I appreciate this. <laughs> you know, there must be things that are uh, indicative that display who I am and are indicative of a person who, um, is successful in doing the things that I do. And so now I have to figure out, well, one thing, you know, I have, I have a list of things that, that kind of make up who I am as a person. Like if I'm practicing my music, I try to analyze my practicing so that I practice intelligently. So I don't have to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And I don't really believe that there are wrong ways of playing music. I don't believe that we make mistakes. I think that we do things that may not be the intention at the moment, but as long as I'm not hurting myself physically, there's no wrong way to play music. You know, if somebody's playing a guitar on the corner and they're singing their heart out and the guitar is out of tune, I'm not going to diss them. I'm not going to criticize them. It's like, hey, wow, you know, you're having a beautiful time playing your guitar. Now, if that person says to me, would you help me tune my guitar? Then I will, if I help them, then they now have more choices. They can play like they did before, or thanks to me, they can now choose to play with an in-tune guitar. So I think a lot of what we do is about adding on, adding, 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 adding. So whatever it is that, that kind of in, in my past has been has made up how I have been successful and how I've done things to me that's living and breathing and growing as well so it's it's not only about the things that I've done in the past that I do again even those things change like for instance if I write a if a singer says hey I'm going to make a recording and I'd like for you to write some arrangements for me and they say, I want it to be like something you did for Diana Krall or whatever. I'm probably not going to want to do that because I'm going to say, hey, you are who you are. Let's let's examine how you embrace music and what you're into. And then I'd rather tailor make it for you because every time I've tried that in the past, when I take a piece that I've done for somebody else and I use those same elements 
to write the new piece for that other person, it never works. I don't mean it sometimes works. It never works. It, I, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm a different person. That's a different person. Yes. The music is different. So, yeah, those, those are some of the things that I think about when I think about your question. I, I can uh, sort of relate to that because there have been times when my wife and I have had a good time doing various things and she'll want to try to recreate something and it's never the same. Never you the know, same. if we if we had if we go to the park and whatever, you can't recreate those times because they're impromptu. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when it comes to expression, because yes. you know, we're in the we're in the field of art, and art is about expressing yourself through art, whether it's painting, whether it's music, whether it's dance, we're expressing ourselves. And you cannot you cannot judge expression you cannot analyze expression that's true i'm trying to i'm trying to dig into your answer here and what i pulled out of it is this i think that you uh, you pay attention to detail you talked about analyzing your practice and i think you're mm-hmm. you're careful about how you spend your time uh in analyzing practice you, you talked about uh, not hurting yourself physically so i think you're mm-hmm. in tune with your surroundings and with your body is that accurate so far? Yeah, absolutely. And, and finally, you also play to the strengths of the individual artist that you work with to bring out their their strengths, their features, their best features. That's exactly right. Because that artist that I'm working with is working together with me to embrace the music, to how can we work as a team to enhance the music. It might be a trumpet player, a saxophone player, and we're trying to put our heads together to really make this music express our express the vibe that we're trying to, to do. Or if it's a vocalist, I'm working with that vocalist to help him or her deliver the message. That's the cool thing about vocalists is they're not only singing beautiful melodies and things, they are also delivering a message, and the message is the most important th- important thing. It's not the melody. It's not the harmonies. It's not the groove. All of that stuff is important, definitely. But it's all servicing the message of the song. That's true. So I want to ask you about, well, first, before I ask this question, do you have a, any type of team of people that help you with your career? Yes. Or do, okay. Well, who, who is that? What, what is, who's on that team? What are their roles? Well, first of all, I have my musician friends who are my my brethren, you know, my 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 family, my sisters and brothers in, in music, you know, so I have that team. But I also have uh, people who have other strengths that help me move forward with my music. Um, I, have, I have a manager and that manager has enlisted a, a booking agent. So my manager is the person that I can uh, go to to help me with my career goals. That's what the manager does for me. Um, And I run things by her. You know, when I have an idea about I'd like to do this, or if somebody calls me with a job offer, performance offer, then, of course, I run it by her, and she and I have a discussion. Is this something that is going to really help 
cultivate what is your fantasies and your dreams and what, what you're trying to do. And if it is, then I say, cool. If not, then she says, you know, maybe we should consider that another time. So I have uh, a manager who, who, um, who enlists a, a booking agent, but I also have a personal assistant. Um, actually, it's a husband and wife team. And they help me with all of the things that, that I would love to do on my own, but just don't have time to do. You know, so I, I work with them on my Facebook, for instance. So it's not like I turn it over to them, but there'll be times when I'm, I'm, I'm traveling someplace. I don't have time to go online, but I want something posted. So I'll send it to my personal assistants and I'll send them the message and, you know, they can do that stuff for me. Or, um, if I'm on the road and I need to get some, some, some music delivered to somebody or sent off to some, you know, those kinds of things, things that I really want to do myself, but I can at the moment. They're, they're invaluable. And they, and they also help me with, they're not just gophers. They help me with, with ideas. They help me think through things. I, I bounce things off of them as well as my manager. So, you know, we're, we're close. So I think it would be safe to say these are people that clearly you trust and, and love as people. Absolutely. That's, that's important when you're building a team. That's good to, that's that's good to know. And it's also, it's also important that the team uh, be in as deep a way as possible committed to what it is that you are about. In other words, obviously, I love music. I don't want to have a team working with me that hates my music. Then it's just, it's, whoa. So I tell people that all the time, when, you know, when you, especially if we're talking music, the music, the music, the music, the music, those two words really guide my life in, in a big way, uh, not entirely, but in a huge way. So that means that the music is going to determine where I live. It's going to determine who is in my community and my family. It's going to determine who I date. I mean, I hope that our friends are not dumb enough to date somebody that hates their music. It, you know, it just, the, it just determines so much. So it's really important to keep the music. I always say that the music is bigger than we are, but we are more important than the music. That's good. Because we're, we're human beings. Now, at what point did you bring your team in to your career? Where were you at that time in your career? And why did you think it was important at that time to bring in some help? I already finished school and toured, been on the road, all the things that go along with that recording and such. Um, and at some point, um, I moved after many years back to L.A., but by that time I had a wife and two children in tow. And um, I started just kind of living life playing concerts, doing gigs and stuff like that. But then at some point I realized that I needed some help. I not only needed help, I needed people who had strengths and contacts and things that I needed that I didn't have. Uh, hence the manager, hence the personal assistant. Now, were these people that were already in your life and you thought, who do I know that can help me? Or did you go out and seek them elsewhere? My manager came about because I got out of a relationship with my first manager, who was the manager from hell. 
he was the worst thing that could have happened to me in terms of of a good vibe and community and all that kind of thing. He just was the wrong person to have. Uh, but then that made me, you know, I guess I should thank him in a sense because he then made me aware of the kind of manager I needed to have. For that person, my brother and I both felt like we needed a manager for our group, the Clayton brothers. So he stalked, he found her and he stalked her. She had a full roster, wasn't taking anybody on. He didn't care. He just kept calling her up and sending her flowers and, you know, just candy and the whole bit. And, and uh, then I, she's in New York. And then I went to New York on a project, a recording project. And she came to the recording project and met me and heard the music. And then she said, okay, I'm hooked. So that automatically made me want her to be, want her to be my manager even more because she fell in love with the music that I was doing. And that's, that's the kind of person that I want. <laughs> yes, yeah, makes sense. So I want to move on to talking about planning your work. So what's your method, if you have one, for, for planning your year? Well, I'm at the point in my life where, you know, knock on wood, I have a, a small handful of things that are in place in my life kind of annually. The Lionel Hampton Jazz Festival, I'm the artistic director of that. The uh, Centrum Workshop and Jazz Festival, I'm the artistic director for that. The Vail Jazz Foundation, I'm the education director for that. And then, you know, aside from those things that happen throughout the year, I can sort of fill in the holes with other things that I love. Like I, I love playing with our quintet, the Clayton Brothers. And I love playing with and writing for the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra. Um, I love teaching, so I get asked to be artists in residence for high schools and colleges and things like that. I'm also kind of an artist in resident education uh, person for Berkeley College of Music for their education uh, and development department. So, you know, put it all together. The next thing I know, my year is pretty filled up. And, you know, and the touring that I do, I do a lot of touring in different things. Sometimes it's with Monty Alexander and Jeff Hamilton with a reunion, kind of a trio group, because we used to have a group together. Or um, the other groups I mentioned. And then just some other things that, that come up, other projects. So my year gets full pretty fast. All right, I have one more question in this section. And then we'll go on to uh, relationships um, but I want to ask about goal setting and visualization, because I can tell that you, th that's something that you believe in. And I want to just ask, what are some goal setting tips that you can share with us now? And maybe also talk about why that's important. I think the first thing I encourage people to do is to just go inside yourself. If it means a walk in the woods with your phone off, if it means a walk on the beach, if it means just you know, a large chunk of quiet time where you're really not disturbed. Go inside yourself and see what it is that you desire. You know, so, so for a musician, for instance, it might mean um, that person says, I'd love to play with Wynton Marsalis or with uh, Chick Corea or Herbie Hancock or Brad Meldow, you know. Then what that person needs, that really is what is 
touching their souls. Make not, not what you think you're capable of doing, not what you think you're qualified of doing, but what, you're, what your heart truly says, I would love to do this. Then the next bit is understanding the tasks involved to help you achieve that. <clears throat> so let's say it's playing with Herbie Hancock or Wynton Marsalis. Well, you know what you have to do. You have to get all of the Wynton Marsalis recordings, all of the Herbie Hancock recordings, and you have to learn all those songs. And you hear them every chance you get. And you say, you meet them when possible. Hello, Mr. Hancock. My name is so-and-so, and I love your music, and it's my dream to play with you. I'm learning everything you've ever done. Now, when Herbie Hancock needs a bass player or whatever it is, he's not going to say, who do I call? He's going to say, who's that person I met says they're learning everything I've ever done? And, and this way, you are, you're doing what a lot of people might call networking, but to me, it's, there, there are too many negative connotations to the word networking uh, when it comes to art and uh, comes to relationships. In fact, I prefer the word relationship. Yes, I do too. Uh, you know, because especially if, if, you know, if, if someone was to say, yeah, man, when you get to Chicago, be sure to call up Chris. He'll hook you up. He's got all the gigs. That's a terrible reason for people to want to get to know you. you. That would just feel dirty to you. But if somebody says, Chris, man, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I love your work. And, and I have everything you ever, I follow you all the time, you know, then you're going to go, Oh, really? Well, <laughs> That's geez, right. come on in, you know? Yes. So we're in that kind of a world. This world. So anyway, going back to the goals, go inside yourself, determine what it is that you really would love to be a part of, and then start understanding and defining the tasks that go along with helping you head in that direction and realizing your dreams. I already know what's going to happen. You know, if, if I'm, if I think that I've got enough together to finally be able to play with Herbie Hancock, it could be that Herbie Hancock doesn't really need a bass player at that moment in time. But by having the Herbie Hancock focus, I already have raised my level to such a height that my world opens up. So maybe Herbie doesn't need a bass player, but because of my Herbie Hancock focus, I get a call from Brad Meldow and, and I can hang thanks to all the efforts I put into this focus. So that's kind of how I, I encourage you. And, you know, and you'll, you'll find that you change your mind along the way. And that's cool because it's your life. You're allowed to change your mind in pursuing the Herbie Hancock goal. You know, I might suddenly discover Joe Lovano. I still love Herbie Hancock, but Joe Lovano's touching something in me more immediate right now. And I'm, next thing I know, I put Herbie on hold a little bit while I'm all fanatic and excited about Joe Lovano as an example. Man, that's a great example. And thanks for that, for those words of wisdom. You're welcome. You talked about relationships a little bit, and I say it just about every episode now, but relationships come up because this is just an important thing in life. So I want to ask you about your relationship with Ray Brown. Mm -hmm. how, how did you develop that relationship with him? And was it your intention in the beginning when you met him? Or did it happen naturally over time? Of course, it happened naturally over time. But I want to know, like, did you go in with the intent of starting something with him? 
Actually, no. I, I was 16 years old when I met him. He taught a class at UCLA, an extension course. And I, and since it was an extension course, it met every other week in the evening. And all you needed to do was pay for the class separately. So I paid the $65 and I enrolled in the class. I had just before that time heard my first Ray Brown recording. I didn't even know who he was. So the first time I met him, I didn't know about what a broad career he had had at that time, that he was in there playing music in the early days of Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and, you know, being one of the, in this sense, co-founders of Bebop. And I didn't know all, and I didn't know that he had played with and actually had been married to Ella Fitzgerald and, and all, you know, all I didn't. So I just thought, man, I'm, I'm excited to take this course because I want to know more about jazz. And I just heard a record of this jazz bass player. And now I'm in his class. I got hooked the more that he exposed me to the beauty of music and the, the wonderful bass world that awaited me. I, I just couldn't get enough. So when the class ended, I followed him around. He let me follow him around to recording sessions and jazz clubs and concerts and uh, he got me classical lessons arranged and uh, all this stuff and he just that relationship became one that was easily as deep as the relationship with my own father easily when when ray brown passed away and i and i heard the news i was devastated i because i had never he died before my uh uh before my father did and when I heard that news that Ray Brown had passed away, I, I, I just, I was just uncontrollably devastated and sobbing and the whole bit. I remember, you know, my wife and my son were on the couch next to me, consoling me while I was just falling apart. And I just said, I have to go. I have to go. I have to go. So, you know, um, I got in the car and I drove to Ray Brown's house, uh, because his, his, his widow was like a mom to me. She still is. And uh, actually, I actually call her moms because she's like a second mother to me. So anyway, I, I drove there. And I just remember as many times as I had been to his house, getting out of my car, sobbing to every step, weighed 300 pounds, lifting my leg up and just walking up those stairs. You know, it, it, so... Oh, I'm, you know, just trying to paint the picture of how deeply affected I was by Ray Brown. Losing him was like nothing I'd ever experienced. In my silly, naive way, I never dreamed about his mortality. I never thought about it. I never thought about him not being around. Obviously, you know, you'd say it in conversation. Yeah, well, you know... One day I'll be gone and one day I'm going to move on. But, you know, you don't really get, give much thought. I hadn't get it. Anyway, so that impacted me. Ray Brown, when I met him at age 16, I learned lessons. I continued to learn lessons from him until the day he died and, at, and thereafter. Some of them were conscious lessons that he was giving me because he would always say to me, here's what you got to do. And then he would instruct me. Other things were lessons that he, that I learned from him inadvertently, whether analyzing his music or reading something about him, whatever. 
So I, I always learned lessons from Ray Brown. I'm smiling because I have a segment planned in a few minutes. We're going to talk about lessons you learned from other people you worked with. But um, really, really quick, in the beginning, why do you think he chose you? In other words, did he do those nice things to everybody in class? Did he connect you with everybody with lessons and things like that? You know, honestly, he was open to do that. But I was green and hungry. He saw my hunger. He saw my enthusiasm. I was the perfect student. I would do whatever he told me to do. I never questioned it. I trusted him. I just, you know, I, I, I was the perfect student in that regard. And he, he sensed that enthusiasm. He saw it clearly, I'm sure. And um, uh, I'm that way now. When, when I have a student, if I see that they're enthusiastic and sincerely enthusiastic, um, then my world is there. Any, there's anything I can do to help. I'm helping. And that's also thanks to Ray Brown. He showed me how important it was to do that. We're going to transition now. We're going to talk about some of your career highlights. I want to ask you about these these things. Okay. Number one, I want to know, I'm smiling. This is, this is great. I can't wait to hear your answer. How did you go from swinging with Count Basie to being the principal bassist in the Amsterdam Philharmonic the next year? So what was going on in your life at that time? <laughs> Honestly... Uh, first of all, I studied classically and I love the music. So, you know, I, I, I just, when I was playing with Basie, the only way I got to play classical music was in my hotel room or backstage now and then, because we were, I was playing Count Basie music, which I loved. That was a dream come true to play with Count Basie. But then when I moved to Holland, I left Count Basie to be with my then girlfriend, now wife, who's Dutch. And so I moved to Holland and I thought, okay, here I am. I don't know any, I have no few people. I don't really know the scene here, but I know that they have like, there were at that time, 16 government subsidized orchestras. They had on top of that, a lot of amateur orchestras. I thought maybe this will give me the opportunity someplace to play some solos with orchestras now and then, you know? And uh, a drummer friend of mine said to me when I told him that, I know some people in that orchestra world. I'll keep my eyes open for you. And um, so he called me back and said one day, hey, I just heard that there's a solo position open in the Amsterdam Philharmonic. Well, <clears throat> solo position means the principal bass player, the first bass player, not, you know, the head of the section, not like solo stand in front of the orchestra and play some solos with the orchestra accompanying you. And, and so I thanked him. I took the information and I was already practicing a lot of uh, classical music at that time for another competition I was in. So I just added the orchestra audition material to what I was already practicing. And I took the audition and they invited me to join the orchestra as a principal bass player. So it was really kind of an accident, to tell you the truth. And, and, and the good thing about Holland it has so much jazz going on that I was still able to play as much jazz as I wanted. Uh, small group, big band, didn't matter. They had it all in Holland. So I, I could play in the symphony orchestra. I could play jazz. They even have an organization uh, called the Metropole Orchestra. And they are kind of a, a jazz orchestra with strings and woodwinds and percussion and harp and all that stuff 
there were just a lot of wonderful opportunities in Holland. But that's how I got into the into the symphony. Okay, the next thing I'm going to ask you about is the Star Spangled Banner. Now, <laughs> this is how this is how I came to know you, uh, because when I was in high school, that was the version of the Star Spangled Banner we played, and it just so happened that was the first time I ever learned the song. So, for for me and people that were in my class, that's uh, very special to us. And we heard all of the harmonies, and we were like, "Wow, man, that's that's nice. That's different. That's funky," you know. And we were young, but we liked jazz. And we didn't know much about harmony, but we knew how it made us feel. And it was great. So I'm happy to be able to ask you this question. How did you end up, first of all, with the job, to, with that particular job, to arrange for Whitney Houston, um, that arrangement? And what was that whole experience like? What do you remember from that time? Oh, I remember everything. <laughs> because right. it was, it was, it was a, quite an experience. Um, the her um music director at the time is a good friend named Ricky Minor. He's also a bass player. And, and Ricky knew what I did and he called me and said, Hey John, Whitney's been asked to do the Super Bowl and we want to know if you would write an arrangement for a symphony orchestra. And you know, he said, the only thing is that I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind doing it in 4-4 four, four instead of 3-4. And if you could also kind of have the percussion section of the orchestra do something with a little groove to it. And I said, sure, that'd be great. So I'll try to make this very long story a little bit shorter. Basically, he went down to the, to, it was for the Florida Symphony Orchestra. He went, up, went down to Florida and recorded the arrangement. So we had it on tape and then Whitney learned it by practicing along with the tape. And then when she got to the Super Bowl, um, the, uh, they played the track and, but she sang it live. So there was an orchestra on the field with violins and stuff. They were obviously just faking it. They were just miming playing while the track was going on. But Whitney sang it live. Anyway, long story short, shorter, the song became a hit and the NFL agreed to make it available to, to her record label so that her record label could mass produce it and get it played on the radio because there were a lot of requests for it, etc. So I'd, at that time, I never had met Whitney. I worked on the music for her without actually being there. And uh, it was later when I was doing something in a studio that Ricky Minor was there in the next studio. And we saw each other and he said, hey, Whitney's in the next room. You want to come meet her? You know, this was years after it had already gone platinum and everything. Wow. So, uh, but what, when he said to me, I want you to do it, I want you to do the arrangement, he also said, I want you to do your thing, whatever you're about your harmonies and everything like that. Just do your thing. So that gave me the freedom to kind of dig into my jazz background as well as my symphony background because I had already played in the symphony orchestra. I knew that color and those those colors. And I also knew, obviously, the colors of the jazz world. And so I started just sort of mingling the two, trying to, again focus on Whitney and what she was going to do with it, but support her in a, a, you know, 
So a lot of what writers do is they deal with tension and release. So I had to think about where, where I wanted the tension, what kind of tension should it be? Mild tension, intense kind of tension, you know, and understand where I wanted the release to be. And, and what kind of arc did I want? The, the melody gets higher and higher as you get, go along. That's an obvious sort of crescendo to a big moment. So I, I just kind of followed those rules and stuck in my own little jazz stuff and tried to do it reverently. And, and the, the, we were in the middle of the Gulf War around that time. So the emotions of the nation were very high and very supportive of the troops. And so it just kind of all came at the right time in that regard. And next thing I knew, she, she had taken off. All right. Now, the final part of your career I want to talk about is the Grammy Award. Now, am I correct? You, you have won one Grammy Award, nominated for more. Is that true? But won correct. one. Okay. Yeah. So I want to ask about that one. What, what was different about that, ex- that particular project? Because you've done so much incredible work. You know, your body of work overall is great. What was special about that project? In your opinion, why did you win for that project? <laughs> I know it's hard to, talk, to, no, to say. It, you probably never thought about this. Or maybe you have. I kind of... I kind of have. I, I understand what's going on. And, and it may be a bit disappointing to people. Uh, but I, I, I feel so honored to actually have the Grammy. I feel equally, and maybe even a little bit more, honored to have the nominations. Yes, I can understand you, that. You know, because what happens is the nominations, most people don't know this, but the nominations come about from a panel and this panel is really a panel of experts you know they're the ones that are really in the thick of the pop scene or the jazz scene or the the latino scene or whatever the music is you know they know it and to be nominated by a panel like that to me is a big honor and a, and a nod toward what I'm doing. The Grammy itself, uh, again, don't get me wrong, I'm so honored to have a Grammy on my shelf. But that is a result of the of, of almost a popularity contest. Because you have people voting who don't really know anything about your music, never have heard your music. The panel listens to everything that they nominate the voters don't. So what happened? And, and I'm, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> Please do. Thank you. I'll go be, you know what? If it had not been for queen Latifah's name, I probably 90 more than 90%. I can say with this year, I would not have a Grammy on my show because people don't know my name and that's cool. I'm fine with that. They know queen Latifah's name. And when these people cast their votes, they're going, oh, Queen Latifah, oh, it's, you know, boom. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I love her. Boom. She gets it. So I'm I'm thankful that, you know, she helped me get a Grammy. Yes, (laughs) I understand. Uh, But those people, too many, many of those people uh, probably didn't actually hear what it is that she did or what we did together. 
Now I want to ask you for you, for for John Clayton, why California? Why do you choose to live there instead of New York or anywhere else for that matter? And how has your your location played a role in your career? How would it be different if you didn't live in California? If yeah, I would I always seek out the areas that are going to make me feel good and are going to provide me with the environment that's going to help me thrive. So when I moved from Holland, I was trying to figure out, do I want to do uh, New York, do I want to do Chicago, do I want to do Miami, you know, Los Angeles. My, the, my focus was I wanted to be a film composer. And, and I, I knew a bunch of these people and the whole, you know, film scoring world, uh, a large chunk of it, the large chunk was in Los Angeles. And I knew, you know, my favorite writers like Henry Mancini and uh, Quincy Jones and Benny Carter and um, Johnny Mandel and, you know, just the list, the list, the list. They were all in Los Angeles. So it made sense. Plus, I could, I had a lot, there's a beautiful, large um, jazz community here, both players and supporters. I just felt like this made the most sense for what I wanted to do at that time. Okay, thank you. We're going to, we're going to do one more uh, quick sec- section here. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to tell you some names uh-huh. of some people that you worked with before. And i like to know in one phrase... A lesson, that, a valuable lesson you learned from them, either directly or indirectly. So maybe they told you straight up a certain lesson that you remember, their words. Or maybe mm-hmm. you watched them and learned certain mm-hmm. lessons. So I'm going to throw some names at you and tell us what you learned in, in one phrase from Quincy Jones. I think from Quincy Jones, I learned to love everyone unequivocally. You, know, you you just have to love everybody with as much heart as you can muster. Uh, Quincy Jones, and you see that when you talk to him, when you when you're around him, it's in his eyes, it's in his aura, it's in his being. It's all about love. Diana Crawl, humility and 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 graciousness. I, along with Jeff Hamilton and a few other people, you know, I, I helped her just try to figure out music and jazz and gave her lessons and all this kind of stuff. Well, that circled around and she was so gracious that she became, she went from being the uh, student to be being the collaborator and employee em, employer. Uh, Jeff Hamilton. Everybody needs a best friend. And Jeff Hamilton is my best friend on and off the bandstand. Count Basie. (laughs) The importance of being a nice person. That was his desire. He said, I remember somebody seeing a, a documentary documentary once and someone saying, how do you want your legacy to read? What, what, how do you want to be remembered? And he said, as a nice guy, I got to experience that with him up close. And I saw how important that was to be a nice person. 
Henry Mancini. I learned the beauty of simplicity in music and simplicity in life from Henry Mancini. Ray Brown. <laughs> I know. Just pick one. Just pick one. Just one. Yeah, oh, just God. pick one lesson. It could be about life or music. Okay. Uh, you know that there are 1,000, right? Yes, I'm, I'm pretty sure because of All your right. relationship. Yes. Yeah. Just one. Uh, he told me, <clears throat> he told me at one point when I had a big head and was looking, you know, at becoming famous and, and doing all these famous things. He said to me, you don't even know how to play the F and bass. <laughs> the first thing you got to do is learn how to play, play the bass from here to here, from the top to the bottom. And then you get your butt out there and you make some music. Because if you want to play this BS, it'll still be here when you're done. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> what a great lesson. Music, yeah. I mean, music first. Music Let, first. Handle, handle your craft. That's great. That's right. Learn wow. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm stopping there. I'm not going on to any other names. <laughs> perfect, perfect, perfect. Okay, um, so, okay, final question. And thank you for being so generous with your time. My pleasure. Behind the No Podcast is advice for a successful music career. So I want to ask you, what are some practical tips that you can give us for getting ahead now in today's musical world? You know, we're in a DIY musician phase right now. So what can we do? Number one, just kind of a, some of it will be a review. Define the music that really touches your heart. Another way of saying that is follow your heart. Follow your heart. Define the music that really touches your heart. And then understand the tasks necessary to be a part of that music at a high level. Understand that there are many people, unfortunately, that don't get it. And they represent darkness. You have to bring your light to every situation. Understand that you will not illuminate always those around you. You probably will, but not always. But most importantly, you will not get sucked into their darkness. And that's the big thing. The other thing is understand that the doors of opportunity will open for you based on the level of your art. So it's not about networking. It's not about an EPK, an electronic press kit. It's not about a killer website. All of that stuff may be things that you want to have, but honestly, what's going to open the doors of opportunity for you is the level of your art. And as long as you focus on that and you're not a hermit living by yourself and don't share your art with people, and as long as you are open and part of the community, it will happen. And when, when the door opens for somebody else, two things have to happen. Number one, you have to applaud them. You have to be happy for them because yes. this is a do unto others world, our music world. And when something good happens for you, you'll want people to support you and be happy for you. So the first thing you do is you're happy for them. The second thing you do is you look in a mirror 
and you say, okay, let's be honest with myself here. I know I don't really know that song. I know when I play the music, I rush the tempo or I drag the tempo. I know whatever it is, you know, and then you understand what it is you have to do in the practice room. And I promise you the doors of opportunity will open for you. Perfect. We're going to start right there. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. This is going to be an all-time best episode. We appreciate you. My, my pleasure, Chris. I appreciate you. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. And that's all for today's show. Thanks a lot for hanging around this long. Fast recap about goals. You want to go inside yourself, be honest with yourself, and seek clarity, and you'll find it. And when the doors of opportunity are open for you, you'll be ready for it. It's great advice given to us by Mr. John Clayton. And about building a team, make sure that your team has your best interest in mind. And thank you for pressing play today on this episode. Please go to BehindTheNote.com and sign up for our email list so that we can stay in communications in the present, in the future. That's all for today. And until next episode, God bless you.